The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of our Bible study tonight is Bridge Over Troubled Water. I was raised in the late 60s and 70s in high school, and there was a group that I really enjoyed at the time, Simon and Garfunkel, a a duo, uh, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, and I just really appreciated their music as as an adolescent. I, I do now, too, as a senior citizen, but now we call it classic rock. It's certainly not oldies but goodies. It is certainly classic rock. And if you're familiar with the group, you'll recognize this, the title of this Bible study because it's also uh, the title of one of their songs and would be, go on to be their last album would be Bridge Over Troubled Water. And I find that the story so interesting because as Paul Simon talks about the song, he said it was the easiest song that he ever wrote, that it just kind of flowed out of him. He had been, he had been listening to gospel music and was influenced by it greatly, and he said the, the writing of the song was the easiest. The arrangement, on the other hand, was the most challenging. What, what many people may not know is that he was inspired by a song that comes to us pre-Civil War. It's what we call a spiritual song, and the, the title comes from a song called Mary, Don't You Weep. And it's given source of comfort to people down through the, down through the years who are going through tough, tough times, difficult times. And the whole song is written from Jesus' perspective, words to Mary at the death of her brother Lazarus. And, and one of, the, one of the, the lines in the song is, I will be your bridge over deep water if you trust in my name. If we look at our Bible study tonight, I want you to derive a sense of strength and of comfort, knowing that Jesus is your bridge over troubled water. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. The woman in our story tonight is nameless, but then again, so were many of those to whom Jesus extended grace. As a matter of fact, I believe her being anonymous allows us to identify with her, except that our great challenge is seen that her story is our story, and that her need is our need. We all know this story well. She was caught in the act of adultery. For us, that means the breaking of a sacred vow, the yielding to lust. And at the time that this took place, she was condemned by the law. We also know that the religious elite dragged her through the streets of Jerusalem, exposing her shame to her neighbors and to her friends. And then of all places, they bring her to the temple and they cast her down before Jesus. Moral police have a sixth sense, if you will, when it comes to detecting sins in others, but they remain blind to their own. To be sure, she's a pawn in a plan to charge Jesus as a lawbreaker. We would say today that the woman is a means to an end. But her story also reminds us that Jesus' death met the rigid requirement of the law which says she must die. At the cross, Jesus satisfied God's perfect justice. He is our bridge over the troubled water of sin. When I was young, my father from time to time, this didn't happen all the time, but it did happen a number of times, would come to my room and he said, come on, you're going with me. 
To live in my father's house, that was not unlike Don Corleone making you an offer that you can't refuse. It wasn't a discussion. So I jump into the car, and usually in the back seat, and he would take off into downtown Vista, which, which to me was amazing at night. It looked nothing like it did during the daytime, you know, with the lights, and, and you know, we're driving down the street. It's maybe 9, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm thinking, there's people out. I'm, they're putting me to bed, and there's people out walking up and down the street. He'd pull in front of a, a bar. We used to call them beer joints. And he'd say, stay here. I know. We, my dad was a man of few words. And he'd say, you stay here. I'm like, where am I going to go, Dad? I mean, it's like the middle of the night, you know? And he would disappear into the bar. And now, as a little guy, I would study the entrance of the bar where I could look inside and I could see a couple of things. I could see people moving around. I could see smoke hanging in the air. And the thing that intrigued me the most was the pool table with the, the green velvet and the shiny balls bouncing around. And eventually my dad would appear in the door of the beer joint, exiting with a, with a man with him. They'd get in the car, and my dad, my dad would drive him home and deposit him there where a nice Hispanic wife was waiting for him. If you know what I mean, you know what I mean. My dad would take me home. As I got older, I got a little pushy. And I remember confronting him one time, and I said, why do you do that? They're, they're going to be there again next week. They smell bad. Sometimes they've messed on themselves. Why do you do it? And then Daniel Ramos, my dad, wouldn't even look at me, and he would say, the reason I do that is because there was a day when somebody came for me. And a part of me remaining sober, Junior, is going back and helping them. Again, my friends, it's important for you to know tonight, whatever is going on in your life, that God left heaven to come for you, to rescue you, to save you. He is your bridge over troubled waters. On the screen, you'll see Psalm 103, verse 10, where David says, He does not of God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Some of you need to hear that tonight. I know I do. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us for according to our iniquities. Now be careful, because this doesn't mean that you and I aren't to judge sin in our own lives and from time to time in the life of a friend. The idea is that before we point out sin in others, that we are to invite God to deal with sin in our lives. In the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measurement that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And in verse 5, that's verses 2 and 3, jumping down to verse 5. Then he says this, You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not that you're not going to be able to help your brother by removing the speck out of their eye. Jesus simply says, first remove. And it's interesting terminology, because this is, comes from a, 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 the workshop of a carpenter. Speck literally was one flake of sawdust. That's what it describes there. One small piece of sawdust. And Jesus says, why do you, with this beam, right, 
Interesting, too, that was the main beam that supported the roof to a home. Why do you who have this beam in your eye first deal with that, first take that out, and then you can help your brother, then you can help someone who's caught in sin? Wanda and I recently had the opportunity to take a vacation to Alaska, and it certainly was on our bucket list. Do you know that the ground freezes in Alaska? I'm a Southern California kid. I've never heard of that in my entire life. I got to tell you what, apart from not having Mexican food for two weeks, I was pretty startled by the fact when they told me, this ground freezes. And I said, you got to be kidding me, homeboy. What are you talking about? This ground freezes. Well, in order to get to Alaska, we had to get on an airplane. It's been quite a while for me. I was wondering what it would be post-pandemic. So we get into our seats. Finally get heading down. I'm a little impatient. I'll be the first to admit that. Finally get into our seats, snapped in. Everything's put in. Everybody sit down. They close the door. You know the story. And as we're taxiing to the runway, the flight attendant appears in the middle, you know, in the middle of the plane. Talks about the seatbelt, connecting it. It's on your lap. And then, of all things, they give you a gift. They give you a little bag that's in the compartment in the seat in front of you so that you can deposit something in. I won't get graphic tonight, but the idea is that you can put something in there and then you can seal it up and take it with you, put it in your carry-on. And then there's the exits, right? I got that down, maybe I get a job. I mean, there's the exits, emergency exits. And then they tell you this, if you're traveling with somebody who needs assistance, and first, but first they say, if the cabin should lose pressure, which immediately has me seeing movies that I've seen where people are getting sucked out these little tiny windows, <laughs> but if the cabin should lose pressure, these uh, source of oxygen will come down. But listen to what they say, first put yours on, and then if the person that's traveling with you needs assistance, then you can put theirs on, but first, put yours on, and then help them with theirs. And I think that's the principle when it comes to dealing with sin. First deal with yours, and then you are able to help somebody else. Let me read to you a, a verse from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, and so this is to Christians, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch for yourselves lest you to be tempted. The idea of transgression is that this is going to happen to Christians from time to time. You are going to be seduced by sin. I am going to be seduced by sin. And Paul says, those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are spiritually mature, understand this, are to approach this individual and with gentleness and tenderness, understanding that you yourself are vulnerable to the very same thing, are to restore him. The word restored is a, restore is a medical term. It, 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 it describes the setting of a bone that's been fractured or dislocated. It means to help a friend with their sin. Let me give you a couple things to think about. First, it means that you love somebody enough to talk to them about the hard things. So you love them, you care about them, you have a relationship. You just don't walk up to strangers. You just don't walk up to a congregation that you don't know and thump them. You walk with this person. You have relationships, so you care enough to, to acknowledge that this sin exists. Secondly, you don't react too harshly or you're not surprised by the fact 
that this individual is struggling. And lastly, you're to understand that you and I have our own issues with sin. Restoration means walking with them for a season. It's not a one and done. It's walking with them. It's caring for them. It's being with them. I remember a story Chuck Swindoll tells. When he was at a weekend retreat, he was a guest speaker. Obviously, man, I would have loved to have been there. I love Chuck Swindoll. And he said that as he was speaking over the course of the weekend, so it's usually like a Friday night, a couple sat- Saturday morning, Saturday night, and maybe a Sunday morning in Adios, you're done. But he said as he was up there speaking and communicating, right over here, right in the front row, there was a woman and her husband. And each and every session, the husband would fall asleep. He'd be leaning on his wife or, or falling over. And, 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 and Chuck started saying to himself, like, she probably made him come. He didn't want to come, but she probably made him come to this conference and to this retreat. And then he got a little darker, like, you know, why does he have to sit in the front row? This is so distracting for a wonderful communicator such as myself. I'm adding that, not him. But, but anyways, and, and, then, and then towards the end, he's like, yeah, why did the guy even come? You can imagine at the conclusion of the conference when there was a long line of people thanking Chuck, and he sees the woman in line making her way, being patient, making her way in Chuck's direction when he thought she was going to apologize for her husband's behavior. And she said, "Um, I I want to thank you. My husband and I have been looking forward to this conference for a very long time. You're his favorite speaker. (laughs) My husband's health isn't well. He was so excited to be here with you this weekend, and I know you noticed that he was falling asleep, but the medication that he takes, or the medication that he takes, causes him to fall asleep. You know, my friends, sometimes when we see people struggling, we don't know everything that's going on in their lives. And Jesus says, and Paul says, understand. If somebody is caught up in sin, understand that you yourself we don't know everything. A degree of humility. Let's go ahead and get into our Bible study. The season is late fall, uh, September. The Feast of Tabernacles had recently been celebrated. Some who observed, came from you know, all over the Roman Empire uh, who had come to observe the feast while they're lingering behind in Jerusalem. We, Tabernacles was what we call a pilgrimage feast. That is, Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem to worship. It was a time when Israel remembered when God sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. They lived in Sukkot, or huts, or tents for the week, retelling the story of God's provision and presence in the, de- in the desert. Now, before I get into this, I just want to explain one thing. That in my Bible, at the conclusion of chapter 7, before the beginning of chapter 8, there is a notation. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through John 8, 11. And and the reason there's double brackets around this story that we're going to consider tonight is because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. It's, it's not, it, it's, it's not uh, scholars will go back and look at manuscripts, and the older that they are, the more closer they are to what we call the autograph or the original. 
but that it was added at a later time. All this means is it likely wasn't in John's original gospel. But, but then why is it here, Danny? Well, tradition tells us a number of things about this story. That it was an actual historic event from Christ's life. That's why it's here. That it's from oral tradition that circulated the account, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery in parts of the Western church. That is, it existed in oral form. Now, you and I aren't as comfortable with that as the ancients would have been, but they were very comfortable stories being told again and again. And I believe maybe one of the most important reasons we consider it this evening is we see that in the story it highlights a number of things about Jesus. First, his humility. I think it's a wonderful example about his, his wisdom. The wisdom that he shows here is not unlike Solomon. And then it's also an indictment against those who would have him crucified. And then we see Jesus' forgiveness of a sinner. I had a pastor friend, a good friend, who was talking to me when he heard, when he heard I was going to be teaching this. He goes, you know, you need, you need to know this, Danny. This isn't in the original manuscripts. And I go, yeah, but I got a verse for you. He said, what's the verse? I go, John 21, 25. He goes, I'm ready. Okay, let me give it to you. Now, there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Tonight, my friends, we consider the story of the condemned woman. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, first we're in the temple, verses 1 and 2. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again. This was his habit. This was his practice. Into the temple. And all the people, listen to, listen to terminology, all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. I want you to notice that the Lord immerses himself in two things. First, he spent the night in communion with his father. As a matter of fact, this was so much his practice that when, when Judas Iscariot betrayed him, he knew where Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that he would be there. He, he knew that he would be in this, in this garden. He knew that he would be in this area. Second, Jesus is with the people. He's in the court of the women. Josephus tells us that the court of the women could likely hold up to 15,000 worshipers. And so we find Jesus teaching the people inside the temple's eastern gate in the court of the women. Verse 2 tells us it's early in the morning. I am an early riser. For me, maybe not for you, it's the best time of the day. Typically still dark out. Even now, still dark out. I sit in my chair and I talk to God and to me the whole world just stands still. It's early in the morning. Jerusalem sits at an elevation of about 2,500 feet. The air is chilly. Remember, it's fall. And Jesus taught or explained the scriptures to the people. This was his practice. Jesus is in the temple with people, making truth available to all. There's a quote from Tim Keller I'd like to read to you. It should be on the screen. Tim Keller, who recently passed, and I, I was saddened when I heard the news. I know he had been sick for a long time, but you always hope. He's a Presbyterian minister from uh, Manhattan, and greatly appreciate for him. And the, I, I think my sadness was twofold. One for his family. No, Tim knew he was going to pass. He expected to pass, so 
the sadness for his, his wife and his, his, his family, but then also for future generations that won't hear him preach more sermons. Obviously, we have his sermons, more sermons, or read his writings. But let me read to you the quote. Sound, preaches, sound preaching, I'm sorry, arises out of two loves. I think any Bible teacher will understand this. Male, female, young and old, sound preaching arises out of two loves. Love of the Word of God and love of people. And from them both a desire to show people God's glorious grace. I love that. So we have Jesus in the temple, verses 1 and 2. Now we have a question that's presented to Jesus, verses 3 and 5. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, that is in the center of where he was teaching. So if Jesus is, 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 teach, is teaching here and the crowds are around him, they bring the woman in and they place her right down in front. In verse 4 it says, And they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. That means while the act was taking place. They move in, they rough her up. Like I said in the introduction, they drag her through the streets to the temple. Verse 5, Now Moses and the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? What do you say? What's your interpretation? I want you to see experts in the law who prided themselves in strict observance of the law, and they're interrupting Jesus. Their intention is not to receive the correct interpretation of the law. Their intent is to trap him. And they use this woman as their bait. These men are calloused. This is, this is excuse me for saying that, this is a representation of calloused evil as they use this woman in this vulnerable situation. All that we know about her is that she is the charge that's against her. Again, verse 4, she was caught in adultery. She was apprehended, breaking a pledge made to her husband and to God, and she is now condemned by very, very powerful men. Verse 5, they say, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? They're asking Jesus for his interpretation. Now remember, this is a trap. There's no sincerity here. There's nobody who wants to know. There's, there's nobody who wants to glean and understand. Their only intent is to trap him. And they're using somebody, they're using somebody who is again vulnerable and powerless to achieve their means. One of the things I was thinking about as I was working my way through this passage was how did they know? How did they know that this transgression, that this sin would take place, that which is usually done in secrecy and in privacy, how did they know? Was it a setup? Possibly. The idea of the law is if they knew, if they loved the law, and they knew that this was going to take place, they would have done everything within their power to stop her. They would have done everything within their power to keep the adultery from happening. Looking the other way to trap Jesus meant that they were as, they were as guilty of the sin as she was. 
We see the reveal in verses 8 and 9. And again, he stooped down. And again, that he stooped down to right in the ground. It's important, it's important to know that stoning was the fate of anyone found unfaithful even during the betrothal period. You remember that when Mary was found to be pregnant, it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, of, of Joseph, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I don't know much about Joseph, but I certainly do appreciate his spirit there. Justice seekers, as this woman is presented to Jesus, must ask, where is the man? Let me read to you from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. There must be at least two witnesses. One witness wouldn't, wouldn't condemn them to execution. There must be two witnesses who would, who would be brought in before the leadership. And, and without the other witness being in the room, one witness would give an account. They would disappear. The second witness would be brought in. They would give an account. And they would disappear. And if their testimony did not match up perfectly, the man and the woman were released. But where is the man? Finding two witnesses was so difficult that, again, Josephus tells us that adultery was punished about once every seven years. Law reveals sin. The gospel brings forgiveness. On the screen, you'll see Martin Luther, quote, the law discovers the disease. The gospel gives the remedy. My friends, tonight, it's important for you to know that Jesus is our bridge over troubled waters. In verse 6 and 7, the response. And they said to him, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on, on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. And gentlemen, I'd just like to bring this particular portion of this verse to your attention. Because sometimes we get accused of not hearing. Jesus himself, in engaging with these individuals, acted as though he did not hear. And so verse 7 says, And when they continued asking him, that is repeatedly questioning him, he raised himself up and said to them, that is literally that he stood to his feet and he made eye contact with him. And he says, He who's without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. Their plan was this. If he says to stone her, then he's breaking Roman law because the Romans did not allow the Jews to execute anybody unless it was a Gentile who entered into the temple violating temple law. So he would have, they would have brought him to the Romans. But if he says, let her go, then Jesus would have contradicted the Mosaic law. And Jesus ignores them. He hears the questions with clarity. But he ignores them. He leans forward and he begins to write on the ground. And the idea is that he's sitting down teaching and he leans over and he begins to write on the ground and Bible scholars speculate as to what he wrote and nobody knows. But what we do know is that his finger moved through the dust on the pavement in the temple. He tried the hearts of men. I want you to remember this evening that this is the same hand that reached out to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. This is the finger that etched law on both sides of the tablet as Moses was on Mount Sinai. 
This is the same finger that at Belshazzar's feast halted, halted his, his feast by inscribing the words, many, many tekel upharsin on the palace wall. This is the same hand that healed the leopard, blessed small children, and would be nailed to the cross. We're told that Jewish boys, all Jewish boys, would go to the school of the book, of the law. And as they would come into their community synagogue, they would sit on the floor before their teacher. And sometimes the teacher would take a, a piece of wood and with charcoal would write their lesson and they would hand it from one to another to another. And sometimes with a stick, a slab of wax, he would write out their lesson and he would handle it, hand it student after student after student. And don't you know, don't you know, that sometimes he would smooth the floor and he would write the lesson before the students imparting to them knowledge and understanding, and it's probable that the men that were accusing this woman, having been caught in the act of adultery, had sat at the feet of a rabbi, of a teacher, and had learned the same way. And he says, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone at her. Here she is. Here she is. She's guilty. She's condemned by the law. You throw the first stone. You who are so, you are who so right in your own eyes, reach for the stone and cast it first. Now remember, remember, the first stone was to be cast by the witness of, who had seen her, who had seen her breaking the law. Jesus, is, Jesus probes motives here. He tries, he tries motives, but, but not only of her accusers. The intent of the story is to try our motives as well. To, to, to take our hearts, speak for our own good, and to, to sift our hearts to understand that we have been forgiven much because our God came down and bore our sin that we might be forgiven, and that you and I are to measure out to others the same grace and forgiveness that we have received. Again, Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, this time chapter 5, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Deuteronomy 17 says, let him cast the first stone. Verses 8 and 9, the reveal. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and those who heard it, being convicted or admonished or corrected by their conscience, at least they had a conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman was now standing in the midst. Second time we're told, she's standing in the midst. I love this. I, I want you to, to picture these men who had come in so confident. Come in. Come in with this plan. Watching it completely erase, completely evaporate from before them. I want you to see them. That it could either be by age or by, by rank that they begin to leave from the highest rank or the oldest. They, they all turn and begin to walk out. And I want you to listen to Jesus engage this woman. 
Verses 10 and 11, and we're done. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Woman, interesting. Woman. When Jesus was at the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2, and they had run out of wine, Jesus addresses Mary as woman. There's a tenderness, an affection, a relationship. This woman didn't expect to see the sunset this day. And she has the God of the universe address her with the same term that he would his mother, woman, where are your accusers? He would, he would tell Mary in John 19, 26, regarding her charge being given over to John the apostle, woman, behold your son. I want you to see how Jesus treats the woman caught in the act of adultery. And then he asks her. He speaks to her. Men didn't oftentimes speak to women, but notice the respect. Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? The absence of accusers meant that all the charges against her were dropped because there was no one to cast the first stone. But there was one. There was one person in the temple that day who could have, because he was without sin, picked up a stone and thrown it at her, but he refused to. Because he knew that he would die on the cross for her sin. Because he understood that he would lead with grace and not law. And he knew that he would wash her and make her new again. John's gospel opens with the telling words in John 1.14. And the word became flesh, incarnate, and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Listen to these words, full of grace and truth. And that's what we see here. We see God's grace and his truth before us. Make no mistake about it, we are just like this woman. We are the recipients of God's grace. We are not treated as our sins deserve because of a cross that Jesus died on 2,000 years ago. One more thing, just really two. The woman left the temple forgiven that day. She didn't expect to, but she left the temple completely and totally forgiven. But she also heard the words, Go and sin no more. Jesus was not soft on sin. His charge to her was go and sin no more. True repentance is known by our turning away from sin. Secondly, and this is an old pastor telling you this, it's likely that she suffered consequences. It's likely that she faced her husband, who she wronged, and perhaps her children in her community. She was forgiven by God, but she possibly still lived with the consequences of her sin. In John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
I'll close with a story. So worship team comes out. I remember hearing Pastor Chuck Smith tell the following story of when he heard that a dear friend of his had left his family and had, had, had moved on with this, uh, with this gal. And Chuck, Chuck was saying that he was so grieved and so saddened. And, and, and he had heard bits and pieces of what had happened, but he didn't know for sure. And you know how it is. You, you kind of, every time you have that memory, that recollection, you're saddened, you're bummed. And pretty soon he found out where they were living, and so he determined to go there. Wasn't sure what he would say. Didn't know what he would do. As a matter of fact, he said when he pulled his car up in front of the residence, he sat there for a while. He got up and he walked to the front door only to find out that they weren't living in the house, they were living in the garage. So he goes to the garage, he knocks on the door. His friend opens the door and Chuck said, all I could do was weep. I cried and I cried and the things that I thought I would say I couldn't say, the things that I wanted to say I couldn't say, I wept and I wept and I wept my friends. You who are spiritual, restore one of these. Walk with them, give them grace. Let's go ahead and pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful account of, from your life, Jesus, of a woman who experienced forgiveness, of a woman who heard you call her with the term of affection and relationship, the woman who heard you say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. For my brothers and sisters, or those of us who are joining us online or on the radio, Father, might we experience the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that not only does it transform us, but it transforms us in such a way that we might extend that grace to others who are caught, who are seduced by sin in the gospel is their remedy, because Jesus, you are our bridge over troubled waters. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.